New Year, new live stream, time of the month. That's right. Now we're streaming live every third Saturday of the month. That means we're doing the bonus episode on January 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific or 7 p.m. Eastern. This month is about murder, mystery, and Martin Luther King Jr. You can find us on twitch.tv slash swghosts. If you can't make it, Patreon listeners $5 and above will receive the recording on patreon.com slash sexwithghosts. We're drinking orange juice and vodka. Because the Seattle Times reported that he drank it once. See you then. I couldn't say that without laughing. Welcome to Sex with Ghosts. I'm Molly here with the best sister, friend, daughter. Sorry, I'm in the family mood. Bridget. I'll take it. Um, I I would agree with all those things. Not not necessarily everyone in my family would. (laughs) Well, you should. If you're listening, sisters. You're lucky to have her. Yeah. You hear that? <laughs> Write it down. Put it on your fridge. Just because I thought we'd change it up today. I'm I'm introducing us because I'm going to tell Bridget a story. And this is probably the first time I've ever told Bridget anything that she did not already know. So it was very exciting to me. Yeah. The first time you mentioned it was while we were recording another episode. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And my mind was blown and you didn't even give me a lot of details. And then after we said, cause we said in that moment, I think we edited it out of the episode, but we said, we got to do this as an episode. And then not long after that, I started seeing headlines and I was like, this sounds like, this sounds so familiar. And then I remembered you mentioned it and we do an episode. So I have purposefully don't know anything about this topic, except that. Have you seen the TV show You? No, I haven't. Okay. The one who plays, her name is Love on the TV show You. She was supposed to be in a movie based off this author's, one of her books, and she pulled out when this story broke. So that's the most controversial thing I know so far. That makes sense. Yeah. It is going to be pretty controversial. Today, we're just going to hit on a couple of the basic controversies, but I believe we're going to split this into two episodes, and the next episode will be more recent controversies. But I wanted to introduce the story. Author Alice Siebold was raped at 18 years old. She accused Anthony James Broadwater, and he was convicted of rape and served more than 16 years in prison. He was released in 1999 and exonerated in 2021. Wow. And so that sounds like there's some very interesting 
time gaps there. Yes, yes. And I mean, I, maybe I should add a sentence in there that says, and she made a lot of money off of writing about this story. I think that that is a very good and important detail. And I love that delivery so much. So don't edit it out. Okay. I'll, I'll keep that in there. <laughs> I like that there was a pause of like, oh yeah. And then this very crucial part of the story where she exploited her terrible, everyone's terrible experience from what I gathered. Yes. So just to get your history or maybe kind of inform the audience as well, Alice Bold is famous for writing The Lovely Bones. Terrifying, like very creepy movie. Yes. And it was turned into a movie. I did not see the movie. I did read the book. Stanley Tucci. Oh, so did you see the movie? Oh, yeah. And I can't. The girl in it is someone famous, too. But I just remember Stanley Tucci (laughs) playing the villain. And that just like was something that I thought he was so good in that movie. Well, probably one of Stanley Tucci's best roles. Wow. That's a that's saying something. Did you enjoy the movie? I don't think I knew all of what it was about when I watched it. I think I was probably midway in before I was like, oh, my God, this is what this is about. Now I understand why it's called The Lovely Bones. Like, Got it. Yeah. I think I watched it without reading any sort of summary. About it. That sounds like an interesting way to read it. I could see how that would be fun. But it was like one of those movies. Everybody was like, oh, you got to see this movie. And I think it must have been playing either on cable or maybe I rented it from somewhere and was like, I guess I'll just watch this. I know I've heard of it. Sure. Yeah. Kind of spooky. Then it was like, yeah. Oh, God, this is dark. Yeah. This story is a little dark, so I will give a content warning for sexual assault, sexual violence, and lots and lots of racism. Oh, yeah. So feel free to skip this episode if you need to. No judgment. Yes, no no judgment. It is very dark. And we're going to try to keep it light because that's what we do here. And also, both of us don't need to feel depressed anymore. <laughs> the holidays are hard enough, aren't yes. they? <laughs> it's true. We should try to think happy thoughts and try to look at the I don't know. There are no positives. Just use that dark Irish humor. <laughs> yep. There you go. So we have an Anthony James Broadwater who was born in Syracuse, New York. His father was a janitor and his mother died of pneumonia when he was five years old. Ooh, that's intense. He actually did find his mother as well, which is very sad. He what? He found his mother. Oh, like when dead. she died. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Not that this is better, but as a five-year-old, I don't know if you really have that much of a grasp on life and death. So perhaps he wasn't scarred horribly. I don't know. I mean. He was probably scarred horribly. Yeah. The last time you saw your mom. Or one of the last times was when you found her dead. And then that's like, whew, probably a memory you think about sometimes. Yes, yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah, I guess that would, especially at that age. Anthony 
Broadwater was the fourth of six boys. He was with a brother when he found his mother. Just a side note. Ooh, you got a trauma buddy. Yeah, yeah. Which I think maybe would help a bit. Yeah, I think so. As someone who's gone through trauma with siblings, it is always kind of nice to say, remember when we all experienced that? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, great. I'm not crazy. We really had terrible, terrible uh, supervisionist children. Absolutely fair. He was outgoing and rambunctious as a child, but never got into serious trouble. The local police knew him. Do they know him because he um, he's like a kid in the neighborhood? Yes. Because I was going to say, like, that's like a theme in The Wire is they talk about like how cops used to like know yeah. people in the neighborhood because they would just like talk to people. Right. And then at some point it went from like talking to people to how many black kids can we arrest? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's like that. That is a good way to describe it. He rarely set foot on the Syracuse campus because most of the young black people around him all considered this area off limits to them. Uh, terrible, but makes sense. Yes, yes. And it was a little bit of racism, but it was also a little bit of townies versus university as well. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was weird in Iowa City, aside from the townies I went to college with. If you met a townie who was not in school with you at a university event, it was very trippy. Like, like, why are you here, though? Right, right. He was a wrestler in high school, but he dropped out around 17 to join the Marine Corps so he could see the world and better himself. I'd say that's probably pretty common back then, too, especially for people of color. They love to target them. They do. And his recruiter said he could pretty much get on a plane to California. And so that's what he did. Nice. He served as a communications officer and was stationed at 29 Palms in Camp Pendleton before he ended up with a cyst in his wrist and was honorably discharged with disability. He returned to Syracuse because... His father was ill with stomach cancer, and he took a job installing phones for a telecom company. He was making the equivalent about of about eight forty two an hour. Now we'll go on to Alice Siebold. She was born in Madison, Wisconsin, and I got a lot of this information from interviews she did from before this exoneration. And it's really interesting to kind of hear herself, her talk about herself. Oh, yeah. Before that. Especially because I imagine there's like a lot of backtracking and like, well, actually, it's like, okay. She self-describes as an estranged second child of academic parents. And I'm not quite sure if estranged is the right word, but... I guess that just indicates she didn't have a great relationship with her parents. Yeah. Is she the one that says estranged? I think she said estranged. Yeah. I was going to say, that's like such a, a English major, like, I'm estranged from my parents. And everybody else like, so you just don't talk to your parents? Yeah. And she'd be like, sure. yes, I'm estranged. And everybody else is like, 
Yeah, we just call that. I don't talk to my parents. <laughs> I didn't sign a fucking paper over it. Her mother and father met on a blind date and instantly disliked each other. Nice. Classic. Classic Wisconsin dating. Yes. But her father courted her mother and eventually they fell in love. That is like such a Midwestern relationship where it's like, why are these two people dating? They clearly hate each other. I mean, I'm sure it happens everywhere, but every time I go back home, I definitely see a lot of it. Yeah, it's rough. I am very glad we escaped that. There's no <laughs> there's no reason to date someone you don't like. There really isn't. Yeah, not necessary. Her father held his first academic job at Duke University. And this is where her mother developed a drinking problem. Classic, classic. A uh, wife of a professor drinking yeah. her life away. She, she didn't have anything to do. She was in a new place. She developed the drinking problem around this time. She's also addicted to Valium at one point. Hey, if you're not addicted to Valium, did your husband really work at Duke? I think that's fair. <laughs> she did get sober, though, but... After she got sober, she suffered from extreme anxiety. That makes sense. Yes. To the point where Siebold's older sister, Mary, was the caretaker in the family. And that's crazy, too, because, like, you know, with Valium, they were, like, giving that to housewives. They're like, oh, you need to relax. I got a pill for you. It's unfortunate because it's like it can be very helpful in a lot of cases, but your doctor also has to watch out for the (laughs) inevitable addictive qualities. Yeah. Her sister, Mary, would often get sick of this, so Alice was then left to soothe her mother when she was having her panic attacks. They were moving around a lot for her father's job, and her father would also go on these yearly research trips to Spain because his field of study was Spanish literature. So also, I kind of want to point out, this is obviously a very privileged background. Oh, yes. Yes. When we started in Wisconsin, I thought maybe she was a scholarship case, but like she got to a level of privilege where your mom gets addicted to Valium. So I just want to keep that in mind as you tell this story. Yes. And you can kind of tell that based on what she self-describes as. She says, too smart, too fat, too loud, too arty. Lena Dunham? Yeah. That is exactly what it reminded me of as well. She argued with her parents a lot. And the entire Seabold family was known for their very fierce table arguments about simple things like the meaning of words. Oh, my God. <laughs> I totally know this family. Yep, it's true. <laughs> I do, too. Well, I, we definitely know this family because it is a very creative writing leaning family. However, Alice's sister, Mary, was the straight A student. So Alice felt, of course, that her parents focused on her rather than Alice 
who felt like she kind of wanted to be a rebel in her little academic family world. Wow. Yeah. So people born to more privilege. I mean, you could say I'm pretty privileged. I'm a white woman from Iowa, but it's good to hear that 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 shitty rebellion thing also happens when your parents have money. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it happens everywhere. The thing is, you can only have this rebellion if you have some sort of safety net. I mean, not necessarily, but that is a lot of the reason. You become successful in your rebellion. Like you're going to become known as an author because your parents who you're rebelling against also help you open up a bunch of doors that wouldn't have happened from a lower class standpoint. Right. Her father, at the time she was going to high school, was working at the University of Pennsylvania. And Alice could not get into the University of Pennsylvania. So she went to Syracuse instead. Ooh, burn on Syracuse. Ah. <laughs> All right. So now we get to May 8th of 1981. And I'm going to start with the testimony. These are the facts that were testified to. After this, we'll talk about what she wrote in her memoir. Ooh, we do we have some storytelling? Yes, yes. I love it. From the testimony, Alice is celebrating the last day of school at a friend's apartment. She leaves to head back to her dormitory, and she is following a brick path through Thorndon Park. She's approached by a stranger who grabs her and punches her. Jesus. He threatens her with a knife and drags her by her hair into a tunnel and rapes her. She arrives at the adjacent Kraus Irving Memorial Hospital a short time later. In the meantime, Anthony Broadwater believes he was at home on May 8th, 1981, but has no proof of this. Okay. So he has no alibi. Yes. But he says he's not in the park at this time. Yes. Now, that's kind of what she testified to in the court case. But she also wrote a memoir about it called Lucky. Funny story about Lucky is that the publishers have pulled it and they are looking into how to adjust it and reissue it in light of this exoneration. So you're saying... Her memoir may not be an accurate retelling of events. Yes, it's true. And so I don't know how much of this to necessarily believe or not believe, but I do think it gives a really good insight into her mental state and how she carried this rape with her all these years. It is very graphic as I've already warned, but this is where it gets extremely graphic. From the book Lucky, we learn a lot of details about the rape that she did not include in the testimony. Some embellishments. And some embellishments, perhaps, though it is a memoir, technically. The rapist, when he comes at her from behind, he grabs and covers her mouth and says, I'll kill you if you scream. 
Classic rapist move. Classic. He releases his hand and she screams. And so the struggle begins. He covered my mouth again. He kneed me in the back of my legs so that I would fall down. You don't get it, bitch. I'll kill you. I've got a knife. I'll kill you. He released his grip on my mouth again and I fell screaming on the brick path. He straddled me and kicked me in the side. I made sounds. They were nothing. They were soft footballs. They urged him on. They made him righteous. I scrambled on the path. I was wearing soft-soled moccasins with which I tried to land wild kicks. Everything missed or merely grazed him. I had never fought before. Was chosen last in gym. Wait, what was that last part? Was chosen. chosen last in gym? Yes. After, okay, an interesting choice of prose. Interesting syn- syntax. So the, the rapist grabs her by the hair and she still struggles against it. At some point, she loses her glasses. He loses a knife and he begins punching her. He sat on my back. He pounded my skull into brick. He cursed me. He turned me around and sat me on my chest. I was babbling. I was begging. Here is where he wrapped his hands around my neck and began to squeeze. For a second, I lost consciousness. When I came to, I knew I was staring up into the eyes of the man who would kill me. So at this point, she resigns herself to the fact that she could die and she wants to live. So he grabs her by the hair again and pulls her towards a tunnel near the path. And she wants to live so much that she grabs onto the the bottom of the iron fence outside of the tunnel. In the story, she says, I know that if I'm dragged into the tunnel, I will surely die. And this is very, uh, you know, it makes for a good story. Who knows? It may have happened. He yanks her off the fence, drags her into the tunnel and orders her to strip. She offers him $6 and her mother's and sister's credit cards. She begs him not to rape her and says she's a virgin over and over again. He orders her to kiss him. Kiss me, he said. He drew my head forward and our lips met. My lips were pursed tightly together. He tugged harder on my belt, my body pressing up further against his. He grabbed my hair in a fist fist and balled it up. He drew my head back and looked at me. I began to cry, to plead. Please don't, I said. Please, shut up. He kissed me again, and this time he inserted his tongue in my mouth. By pleading, I had left myself open to this. Again, he pulled my head back roughly. Kiss back, he said. So it's a very fucked up story. So she can see his face. Yes, she can. In testimony, she says she is centimeters from his face. Interesting, interesting. He tries to undress her, but fumbles, so she does it herself. And when she is naked, he insults her. Quote, you're the worst bitch I ever done this to. And she carries that phrase with her throughout her life, it seems. He attempts intercourse, but Siebold's intact hymen and his inability to Maintain her in an erection interferes. Yeah, I bet her hymen was really an issue while he was trying to rape her. He's like, I can't get in there. There's a closure of your vagina because you're a virgin. Because that's how that works. No, vir- Most virgins have not actually been raped because of their hymen. 
this is all from a Slate article, which I thought was a really, really interesting article. It's written by, oh, did I not save that? Also, just wanted to say, um, if this is your first time listening, that was sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Slate writer Laura Miller wrote a really interesting article about this. Her article came out prior to the exoneration. No, this was afterwards. Oh, what it is, it's actually a book review of the book in hindsight after the rapist has been exonerated. Okay. So I just thought it was really interesting because she talks a lot about how Siebold writes about this. Yeah. So she's critiquing, you really ruin your credentials when you put an innocent person away based on an eyewitness testimony. And so I could see how, like, listening to you read it, I'm already like, well, did that really happen? Did that really happen? And we should believe people, believe victims, but damn. (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely talk more about that. Just to round out the violence, he shoves his fist in her vagina. He forces her to perform fellatio, but she literally doesn't know how. Most of these details you're giving directly comes from the book. Yeah, as far as I know, all of them do. Okay, I just wanted to double check that when you mentioned the Slate author, that this isn't the the Slate author might be mentioning these things, but they're direct quotes from yes, the Lucky memoir. Okay, I looked at her um, summary of this, but then I also went to there's an excerpt. That you can find and I can I can give you a link to that in the description and it's like just a it's just the excerpt of the rape itself because it kind of also sounds like it's written by a virgin like couldn't get in there because my hymen was blocking him and then he just started punching my vagina with his fist so he could fit his dick in there like that's not like the justification is why someone would be punching your genitalia sure sure And I think that I think we can pretty safely say that she was actually a virgin, but it's interesting because a lot of what she goes through is because of the rapist's inability to maintain an erection. Which I think that sound that actually sounds kind of normal. I mean, God, that sounds terrible. But I mean, like as a person who's read and listened to sexual assault cases it does seem like that is sometimes an issue so that doesn't that's like maybe the most believable part about (laughs) this if that makes sense yeah no that makes sense he does eventually become hard enough to achieve intercourse and ejaculate but afterwards he feels a bizarre mixture of contempt towards alice and remorse So he tells her, you're going to have a baby, bitch. And she is convinced that he's still going to kill her. So she promises, I'll have an abortion. I won't tell anyone. But he then switches to, it's not right what I did. You're a good girl. And he weeps and apologizes. So he's he's a tormented soul. Which is, I mean, honestly, I feel like that is... 
something like we, I just had this weird conversation with my family at lunch the other day and we started talking about like pedophilia, which is the topic of lovely bones. Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't anything severe. It was just like, my mom's like, yeah, my neighbor is a registered sex offender. And then she was kind of saying it where it sounded like a little judgy. So I just kind of like did a little nudge where I was like, okay, but no one who's a pedophile is like, man, I love being a pedophile. Yeah. And then there was kind of like this acknowledgement where everybody's like, whew, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to go through. Like, I think as people who wants to believe in the justice system, you think when someone gets murdered or is assaulted, that the person who did it is just a purely bad person. And, and we forget that humans are very complex and we do things that we're not proud of. And we do things on impulse and for different people, for different reasons, it's more harmful than others, what those impulses are. And I don't think anyone, I would like to think most people who commit rape are not doing it because they think that this is the only way you live. I'm sure that that that's bred in some places where in the South, maybe. Um, But I think most of most people feel bad about doing those things to other people on some level. It's like a true sociopath that can overlook that. And then you're talking about a different issue altogether. That's absolutely true. And you should remember that for the rest of the story. You too, audience. So he's crying, he's weeping, and eventually she gets the courage up to ask for her things. So he hands her all her things and says, take care of yourself. So she starts to walk away and he yells, hey, girl, what's your name? And Alice says, Alice. He says, nice knowing you, Alice. See you around sometime. Jesus, that's creepy. Yeah. Throughout this description, she kind of describes it as him thinking it's like some sort of twisted date. And that, honest, maybe edit this out, but (laughs) I don't know how good this tip is. But that is something I have read in articles. It's like, if you're being raped, Go along with it because it might actually save your life. Yeah, that's it's I feels like I should keep that in as a tip. <laughs> it's also like, I mean, you should dark. say no and right, right. And like have whatever agency you have. But when it's clear that like your agency has been cut off and this person might murder you, then that's when you should probably s- switch and be like, oh, no, I think you're a great person. I'm enjoying this. Yes. <laughs> Just so we can, I can give you a example of that. Talk to me, he said. I believe you. You're a virgin. I'm her first. As he worked against me, trying for more and more friction, I told him he was strong, that he was powerful, that he was a good man. He got hard enough and plunged himself inside me. Yikes. Yes. So she definitely, in the story, she knows that that's what he wants and To end this nightmare, that's what she has to do. Once at the hospital, the physician finds it difficult to take samples for the rape kit because there's so much blood. Well, she busted down the Great Wall of China in her vagina. Yes. And I think that you're probably onto something by saying, yes, virgins think that this is a big deal. But 
she also slips in a point that her injuries require internal stitches. So it's more than that. I mean, it's definitely violent. Yeah. Yes, it's very violent. I mean, I don't think her vi- her hymen was the true holdup right. of penetration. Yes. But no. if you've never been penetrated before, that is very painful. That is a lot of blood. And I imagine in a normal virgin scenario, and you can cut all this because it might be too graphic, but like you would sort of ease into it and you'd be excited. And so like the tears that would happen would be like normal tearing, but like something violent like this, you are going to probably do way more damage than a normal sexual encounter. Absolutely. So the physicians create the rape kit. They take what samples they can. They are able to retrieve a pubic hair from the assailant. She then goes to the police, of course. But he did ejaculate? He did, yes. And did they keep, do you know if they got the sperm too, or was it just the hair samples? So they did, but similarly to our last story, or I can't remember the last story, maybe too many stories that we've spoken about. This was a time before DNA evidence, and that sample has now been destroyed. So, yeah, there wasn't great preservation of the evidence. No. Damn, that's a bummer. It is very much so. But that's another important thing to remember. It comes back. Yes, yes. So when she goes to the police, they have her make a composite sketch of the assailant. And this is from microfilm features. So she has like a set of features that she's picking from, and then they make the composite. Okay. Which I didn't realize, or maybe I'm just dumb. I didn't realize that's how you make composite sketches, which makes a lot of sense. I've always wondered. So that's good to know. Yeah, it is. Uh, But interestingly enough, she feels like she gives exact descriptions, but doesn't really find any of the features in the existing film. And she does think that the composite doesn't really look like him. I also wonder if, and I'm sure this is the case, that there's racism even within white. If she's already like, this was definitely a black man. I would not uh, be at least surprised at all if then what they have to select to like build a composite of what the black man who assaulted you would look like would would be on the racist side, too. Oh, yeah. They also take pictures of her as like the victim pictures. Like where there's bruising. Yes. yes. And different. Yeah. Assault wounds. And uh, she is allowed to leave, but she has to return to the police station later to give an affidavit and look through mug shots. Dang. But as we already know, as most people know, um, she's already experiencing intense amounts of trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Going to the doctor, getting the rape kit, going to the police, trying to make this composite sketch. It's not good. It's a not good situation. And she writes about all of this in detail. In that aspect, I do think this book is valuable. Yes, because it helps people who may have experienced the same things or helps people understand 
what a rape victim actually goes through. That makes sense. I'm on board with that. Yeah. She immediately feels separated from her friends, from pretty much all people. The law enforcement obviously is completely unhelpful. Even the doctors, not helpful. She returns home for the summer because this is the end of the school year. And her parents are extremely unhelpful, as you might imagine. And I'm sure at that time, too, you have a lot of like, what were you wearing? Were you drinking? Because, I mean, those are questions I have. Not even so much. What were you wearing? <laughs> but like the was she intoxicated when this happened? Um, and the only reason I'm asking that in my mind is knowing that the person she did accuse was exonerated and wondering if like that would affect some of the hyperbole. <laughs> Sure. And some of like what she, how she experienced what was going on versus if you experience that completely sober and obviously assault is assault. Doesn't matter if you're sober or drunk, but I think for somebody who's like, I'm a writer and I'm going to write about this experience. I think that's an interesting detail. It is. And I definitely considered that when I was doing the research and I also considered like, my immediate thought was, oh, was this person, the assailant drunk as well? You know, because that's also, also very common. But it, sound, it seems to me that she was not intoxicated. And this is a detail that will come up later as well. But she was actually dressed very modestly. So we'll come to find that most of the public believes her to be kind of the ultimate rape victim where she's this virginal white woman who did not do anything, who fought back against her assailant, did everything right, so her assailant deserves to go away to prison for the rest of his life kind of thing. And that's interesting, too, because a large part of this is all based on the story that she decided to tell. Yes. But back to her parents. Her father, obviously... He's pretty much, as as far as I can tell, based on what I've been reading, he's pretty much an absent father. He goes back to Spain pretty much constantly. My kind of guy. Yes. <laughs> and her mother, who is extremely anxious already, can't bear to listen to anything she has to say about this. And she she probably was like that before. Sorry. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, yes. Are you still talking, Alice? That is exactly what I picture. They realize she can't talk to anyone. Her mother won't listen to her. So they send her to a psychiatrist familiar with the family. However, once uh, Alice explains why she's there, the doctor responds, well, I guess this will make you less inhibited about sex now, huh? What? That's like just how common rape was back then. They were like, well, it was going to happen sooner or later, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. So we can definitely confirm that she received no support at all. Damn, that's rough. Very rough. She does decide to return to campus to continue her education. So she does feel like, I think she says at points, you know, the greatest revenge 
I can take, I can't let this rapist take away this from me when he's already taken so much. I got to say this kind of, in a weird way, sort of defends her storytelling. Like no one wants to listen to her. Oh yeah. The feedback she's getting back is not at all helpful. So I kind of can see how you would be like, well, if I don't have any help with this, I'm going to make everyone really feel and understand what I am going through. And so it might, I'm not saying she did, but I'm saying it might be a little bit easier to embellish some things when you're telling a story that you feel like no one is listening to. I Yeah, I can totally see that too. In one of her poetry classes, Siebold attempts to write about the rape, but is unsuccessful. So her teacher, the poet Tess Gallagher, suggests a different approach. She suggests that she starts with the line, if they caught you. Alice then goes about writing a poem about the pain she would inflict on her rapist and titles it Conviction. And that's interesting, I guess, from um, from somebody with an art background who's taken loads of creative classes, you do change your story a little bit as you workshop things. As you tell people your story, you always get notes back and then you say, oh, okay, that's the part people latched on to. How do I emphasize that? How do I make that stand out more? How do I write other things to stand out as much as maybe that line stands out to people? So it's also not the same as like writing an affidavit or telling someone your testimony of what actually happened. But in creative writing, you're going to write in terms of what provokes people and your audience. And that's a very, very important point as well. So writing does become a therapy for her, allowing her to own the story. Her feelings on the rape are that the rapist is owning the story. She feels like people are staring at her and are talking about her as a rape victim, and she would like to take back the story. She was a victim in the rape, and now she's a victim in the story. But by writing her own version, she can now own it and feels that there is a way out of the trauma. I think that makes sense. Absolutely. However, Slate author Laura Miller writes, Surely it's no coincidence that a week after writing Conviction, she is convinced she encounters her rapist on the street. Interesting. Absolutely. So now we're to October 5th, 1981. It's about five months after the initial rape. Anthony Broadwater and a friend are over on Marshall Street, which is a hangout for the local college students. Broadwater recognizes a police officer from his younger days. He recalls calling out to him, don't I know you? And um, him and the officer proceed to make small talk. But during this, Alice is walking through town. She has said that she believes she was living with PTSD at this time. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. She is in a state of perpetual vigilance and alarm. She is experiencing headaches, recurring nightmares, and she has an increasing dependency on alcohol to subdue the anxiety. 
And I also feel like this is a time when if you were assaulted and you're a woman, you're assaulted in a way it's in media all over the place from your church, from parents, from whatever, that in some way you're a victim. So you have to play the part of a victim. If that makes sense. Sure. Like, I feel like it's only recently people are saying I have to own my trauma and work through it. And I feel like at this time it would be like, I have no, no agency other than probably her writing. And so even though you're writing about it, you're probably still not dealing with it in a healthy way of the next steps of healing, if that makes sense. So you'd be carrying around the anxiety and the drinking and wherever you can to numb it. But that's, those are obviously not proven methods of coping, not great coping. No, not at all. Now to Alice's side of the story in her recollection, she passes a man, Anthony Broadwater. Wait, is this the before exonerated version? Um, no, this is the actual version. This is what happened. Well, this is, yeah, this is literally what happened. Okay. So Anthony recognizes the police officer, says, don't I know you? They make small talk. But according to Alice, she walks by Anthony. He says, don't I know you? And she feels inside her heart that that is him. Oh, my God. Gloating about. No. (laughs) Yes. Gloating about how he got away with the rape. Jesus. Fuck. Which really is the root of the problem, which is white women think everything is about them. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. That's exactly what happened here. As a white woman, I'm a white woman saying that I should make that clear. (laughs) She also notices that it's very similar to what he said to her before, which was, hey, girl, what's your name? Nice knowing you, Alice. So she feels. No, No, sweetie, honey. No one gives a shit about you. That's why your anxiety. That's no one's coming for you. (laughs) It's it's just not a it's not a good situation. So instantly she's sure that, of course, this is the man who attacked her. Of course, of course. And from her memoir, she recounts going to a professor, and I'm just name dropping these names because that's what she did, uh, memoirist and novelist Tobias Wolf, who puts his hands on her shoulder and tells her, try, if you can, to remember everything. Which I think that would be a normal response from somebody. I don't think that doesn't sound like bad advice to me. No, no, it's not. But it is very interesting, especially since she very much took that advice to heart and wrote this book. Or took it as, oh, I guess I should just make up enough shit to make it a full book. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? So, uh, of course, the police round up every black man in the area and they set a lineup for her to look at, to observe Anthony stands with four other black men of similar complexion, but varying features. And of course, Siebold picks the wrong guy, which is to say she picks the one who's not Broadwater, even though she has just come to the least because she saw, quote unquote, 
a rapist. How did she know? So did she see him and then tell the cops like, hey, that guy you were talking to raped me? And then so when they created the lineup, that's how they knew to like bring him in? No. So what she did was she leaves the area and she goes to the police and she says, I think my rapist is here. And so the police go there. The point stands that she picks the wrong guy, a guy who is not Broadwater, but a guy who is standing right next to him. Which leads to a very interesting situation. The assistant district attorney, Gail Ubelhauer, tells her that Broadwater has intentionally tried to trick her by asking his friend to seem more threatening in an effort to confuse her. The guy he was standing next to? Yes, yes. This is blatantly false. And blatantly racist. Yes. There's no reason to bring this guy in other than what this woman felt in her heart of hearts. And then for an assistant DA to come in and say like, oh, well, this is what's going on. I feel like that has to be like just blatant racism because and the reason I know that is because it was exonerated. Like what else would provoke her to say something so crazy? It's not good. It is not good at all. And that is part of the exoneration in the end. As Broadwater has only met this person hours before, they are not friends. And then the assistant DA is like, oh, clearly he's making this guy seem more aggressive, which is also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like someone can be an asshole or like have bad vibes, but you still know who the charming person is assaulted you you know what i mean like absolutely this is nuts i don't like it it is nuts and also i just wanted to include in case you're curious the innocence project has written about how lineups should be conducted in a double blind manner where both the administrator doesn't know which person is a suspect and the witness is not assured that the suspect is present Agreed. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. Like if you have a person in mind who it is, then you should not be there at the lineup. You should not. Because then you're just going to lead the witness. And that's even more fucked up because at least in a court situation, your lawyer can say object or have some sort of power. These people here at the lineup don't have their lawyers there. I think if you get called into a lineup, you should be allowed to call your lawyer. Yeah, it does seem like that. Like you cannot participate. They should make a law. You cannot participate in a lineup without your attorney present. Absolutely. But it it gets worse. Of course it does. Oh, great. Perfect. I was hope I was hoping for that. The DA tells her that Broadwater has a criminal history, which he does not. Does not. She encourages her to trust her memory, but in the meantime, also is coaching her into explaining away the misidentification in front of a grand jury because the district attorney and the police are convinced that it is Broadwater. Oh, my God. There's so many layers to this that is so problematic because she has her story and her own whatever narrative of how it happened. And that's fine. But now she goes to find, you know, pick out her assailant and all the cops and DAs involved and are also leading her 
to go with what she initially went with. And so there's not even an honest investigation happening. They just want to put a black man behind bars. That is very true. In fact, hours later, Alice is insisting that the two are like identical twins. What? No. Now I'm going to show you a picture. And this is from the Daily Mail. So I don't even know if this is actually the picture. And I'm going to feel like a fool if it's not. Don't feel like a fool. You did say it was the Daily Mail. Yes, it is. So this is from the Daily Mail. I'm showing Bridget a picture and we'll share it on our socials. I think this is, even though it's the Daily Mail, I would say this probably is a legit photo. I would hope so, because it seems like an easy thing to prove that it wouldn't be. It's too, it would be too easy of a lawsuit if they're wrong. They like to post stuff that's like, <laughs> I would hope stuff so. that can shimmy around. Yeah, yeah. So um, Bridget can now see Broadwater and then, of course, the person he picked who was right next to him. And they are not twins. They are not twins. They're not even the same height. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, it's not good. I'm sure enough where like I would probably say that is the same height, but there's at least two inches difference between them and the shape of their faces are different and their builds are different. Right. I would agree with that. And it's a black and white photo. So that was <laughs> that's most of the details I can give you off the bat, but they have different head and face shapes and their bodies are different enough. I feel like you'd be able to say more clearly. You know what I mean? I think so, too. But there's going to be more details that come out that will maybe help us detangle this story. Just to give you some more details, Alice herself admits in her memoir that she's not really able to produce a consistent description of her attacker and even says herself that Broadwater looks nothing like the composite sketch. And she said that in the original publication of Lucky? Yes. Okay. So it's really interesting because throughout Lucky, she has all these like doubts. Okay. She kind of writes it all out. And so then fast forward to the future, everyone's like, why didn't, why didn't anyone see this? But we'll get why to didn't that. we pay attention to this? Yeah. We'll get to that next week, though. But just to round that out, as we all know, studies now show that misidentifications of eyewitnesses, especially those that are cross-racial, make up a large percentage of erroneous convictions. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, I honestly think racism is a huge part of it, especially if you have racist cops or where it's like, oh, it's this guy. And then, and then I'm sure She's already in a vulnerable state. I'm sure they're offering advice. Like you said, that assistant DA was kind of helping her write, write off her insecurities about what was going on. And so then you're trusting these people who are in authoritative positions who are trying to help you justify an experience when you're in a vulnerable state. So in that sense, like, I do really feel for her. Because that's fucked up. And that's that's where a large part of these convictions come from. So that's all for today. 
I hope that whetted your appetite for the crazy controversy next week. Yeah, because I got to understand how he got exonerated. Yes, yes. Um, well, it will have a lot to do with how he got convicted in the first place. Hey. Ooh, twisty twist. Well, thank you, Molly, for doing the research and leading this one. Yes. I'm glad that I went through it with you because it was a very dark, dark topic, but I'm I'm glad we can do it together. Yes, I am too, because I know that if I say something inappropriate, I'm in trusted company who will not stop <laughs> talking to me because I said something <laughs> bad. And these cases are really hard, you know? I mean, I feel like as women, we all experience some form of sexual assault at some point. And recounting these stories, it's it's very easy to think about your own experience and like things you did with guys in college and parties you went to where you thought I should have gone home an hour earlier. Just stuff like that comes back and you're like, damn, it's hard out there to be a hoe. It is. So thank you, Molly, for being our guide. Yeah. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bridget underscore suck it. Where can people find you, Molly? You can find me at MollyMM9 on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us at sexwithghosts underscore on both platforms. You can email us at sexwithghostpodcast at gmail.com. And Molly won't make this plug for herself, but it is tax season. And if you don't know who to go to, Molly is available to answer questions and you wouldn't be the first podcast listener to go to Molly. We have had podcast listeners actually reach out to Molly about tech stuff. So she is available. Yes. And it's especially a good time to be mentioning this because no one wants to wait until the last minute. Please email me at uh, Molly at m3virtualaccounting.com. That's Molly with an IE. Or go to my website at www.m3virtualaccounting.com. I will try not to plug that every single time for the next four months, but we'll see what happens. I probably will be plugging it for you if you don't. Oh, thanks. Uh, but you can also support us by giving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you want to be extra special, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghosts. We have decided from now on that we are going to, well, for the time being, that we are going to do our bonus episodes on the third Saturday of the month. So look forward to that in January. And those are on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash SWGhosts. Until next week. Adios. Bye-bye.